It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. You're listening to the music of world-class trumpeter and composer Jun Ida. He is a man of Japanese heritage who was born in St. Louis and lived in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Seattle, Los Angeles, and is now residing in New York City. This young jazz artist has been on a musical journey through life and education that has led him to the development of a rather unique style in his approach to composing, arranging, and performing. Although Ida was mainly attracted to jazz, his music interests were quite diverse, and he even studied classical music at the Cleveland Institute of Music. However, his educational pursuits also led him to Case Western Reserve University, where his passion for jazz was deepened and nurtured by a trombonist and jazz studies professor named Paul Ferguson. While the jazz seed at that point was now planted, it was not until later, after hearing a performance with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, that his path in music, namely jazz, was really solidified. And Maria Schneider, I mean, I've been a huge fan of for a very long time, but it was such a memorable performance in Seattle. The musicianship of all the musicians in the band, you know, I remember Mike Rodriguez is one of my favorite trumpet players. I remember he was in the group. Um, just took a couple memorable solos. Yeah, the music was just at such a high level. It, it felt special in the sense that everything was being executed at such a high level. And it was kind of a wake up call to, oh man, you know, there's so much more uh, beyond kind of what I'm doing right now. Oh, and by the way, while he was in college, he also studied engineering. And yes, guess what happened? After graduating, Ida moved to Los Angeles in 2015 for an engineering job while still actively pursuing his music. I was living that kind of dual life for quite some time starting in college. You know, I, I double majored in mechanical and aerospace engineering and I was doing music kind of in the evenings um, during school. And so, um, yeah, my whole time in Los Angeles, uh, I was yeah working in the aerospace industry. Um, during the day and then you know as soon as I'd clock out I'd run to the, the room shed for a little bit and then go out and try to check out music hit up jam sessions or if I had a gig you know hopefully I'd be you know performing out it was a, obviously a busy few years there but yeah I don't know if I would change a whole lot to be honest while he obviously would not have changed a thing it was the music that became his destiny and has now led him to the release of a debut album called Evergreen and it's on Origin Records. A look into the story and music of June Ida begins now. You, you know, what's funny is that just in uh, on paper, reading your, your bio and information about you, it, it sounds like you've been somewhat of a nomad uh, in traveling all around the world, and more specifically, this country. Uh, and even your, your publicist, in the headline says trumpeter and composer June Ida releases a debut album reflecting his peripatetic life. Who uses that word, peripatetic? <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I had to. Uh, I had to Google that one whenever she sent over the the first draft of the release. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's you know, uh, a lot of it's just kind of been circumstance. Uh, you know, I know a lot of folks who move around are maybe they're military brats or uh, you know they're moving around for a certain reason. But my parents got married in Japan, moved over to St. Louis, which is where my siblings and I were born. That was related to my dad's work, who was in the steel industry. And then from there, you know, after 10 years in St. Louis, we moved to Pittsburgh, um, also related to my dad's work, um, just kind of nomading along the Rust Belt, if you will. Yeah, and then college in Cleveland, I was, uh, you know, working a full-time job in addition to doing music for uh, quite some time. And so uh, originally coming out of college, my first kind of full-time job, uh, engineering job, was out in Los Angeles. And so um, that led to the move out west. And then uh, ultimately after or during the pandemic um, in 2020, I was offered a, another job up in Seattle. And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of been a, a number of different reasons that have taken me to the different places that I've gone to. But, you know, I wouldn't redo any of it. I don't think I, I have friends who always ask, you know, like, do you have a favorite place you've been or least favorite place you've been? But uh, really every single place I've had the chance to live has been a, a unique experience. And I've always, I've gained something from everywhere that I've lived. Well, and going back again to that term peripatetic, which is traveling all over from place to place. Uh, and in your case, as you mentioned, you lived in Seattle, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Los Angeles. Now you're in New York. But I, I guess the million dollar question is, of all of those places, would you say that having resided or worked in some of these locales, has this influenced your music, either from a regional standpoint or based on some of the uh, legacy of artists that lived in those areas? Yeah, definitely. So that was both, um, I'd say, direct and indirect uh, kind of influence. And so indirectly, you know, just uh, I always joke with folks, you know, maybe it's something in the in the water, you know, in the Mississippi <laughs> River there. But there's something with the city of St. Louis and trumpet players where uh, I think even just growing up, you know, whether it's like music that's playing in the, the supermarket or uh, just music that you hear, you know, going out kind of into the city. Um, yeah, there's just a certain connection with with the horn. So I think indirectly, I was probably absorbing a lot of that growing up. But um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, one of my first albums that I had my parents buy for me was um, Hello, Dolly by Louis Armstrong. And uh Again, I'm not really sure how or why I was attracted to, you know, that sound, that music at at a relatively early age. But um, yeah, that was that was something that uh, was just kind of a no brainer for me. And then whenever uh, we started choosing instruments for band, and I think it was fourth grade, um, you know, I was just dead set on the horn. I wasn't gonna play any other instrument. And so um, yeah, definitely, you know, Louis Armstrong. Uh, Miles Davis, Clark Terry, more recently folks like Keon Harold. I mean, the list goes on, you know, for, for legendary trumpet players coming out of that city. But yeah, hopefully, you know, someday maybe I can be a small asterisk on the on the bottom of that list. But um, yeah, I was I was definitely fortunate uh, to be introduced to the horn relatively early. I'm I'm curious about uh, influences of music, uh, and I, I think significantly playing in that role of uh, being a mentor or an influencer for you was your mother. Your mother was a, uh, a semi-pro, and she played the koto. Right. What I found interesting is your mother as a koto player, how that didn't influence you to become 
a Koto player yourself? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I mean, from a relatively early age, and I remember she would be playing out at different events in St. Louis. Um, you know, St. Louis was a large Japanese festival every year where she was kind of featured, you know, they were playing. Um, and I remember kind of early memories of, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a Koto player playing, you know, you're you're sitting on the ground, right, with the Koto in front of you. Um, you have your music kind of on a shorter stand that's in front of you, but um, obviously you need both hands to play the instrument. And so I remember, you know, early, early memories of, being at that festival and kind of sitting beside her and being the page turner for her. Yeah, that was probably kind of the first exposure to reading music or comprehending the connection between, you know, reading music and, and playing the music on the instrument. But uh, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think I always had an affinity for uh, Koto and, and traditional Japanese music. It definitely always felt foreign to me just because it wasn't what I was surrounded by in St. Louis. You know, it was, if anything, a very, very small um, kind of corner of the wide scope of musical influences that I was having at the time, but I never really fully kind of understood or maybe didn't fully appreciate it until, you know, a little bit older. I think it would be awesome to have kind of a, a Koto jazz project next. Well, uh, let me know. I'd be the first one to line up to pick up a copy at my recording shop. At the same time, however, you, like many musicians, you started out actually playing the piano and then moved to the trumpet later. How did that happen, the trumpet, or that transition from piano to trumpet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the piano I started playing when I was about five. Um, my older sister is about three years older than me. And so she started, you know, when she was around the same age. And so, quite frankly, you know, to, to the best of my memory, I think when I started piano, it was more or less just, um, you know, hey, your sister's already taking lessons. She's going to the piano teacher once a week. Um, why don't you start tagging along? And so... Um, that's kind of my early mem memory of starting piano. Um, but uh, I definitely love the instrument, though. You know, I played it pretty actively through high school, college, and I still obviously use it today for different, uh, whether it's composing or even just playing through, you know, etudes or uh, Chopin polonaises or whatever it is. But um, yeah, the trumpet uh, I picked up when uh, I think it was in fourth grade in Pittsburgh. And so when I was nine or 10, um, whenever the school band, you know, starts letting those kids uh, play in the groups. Yeah, I remember there was a day where you go in and you meet with the different teachers. They have you try a few different instruments, you know, and typically if uh, a given kid is good at rhythm, you know, they'll put him on a drum. Or uh, if someone's maybe taller for their age, they might give them a, a tuba. And uh, yeah, I still remember going in and, you know, I have relatively thick lips. And so the, the band teacher automatically was like, hey, you should play trombone. And like I was saying earlier, you know, I was uh, at that point, I was just I was deep in Louis Armstrong and a little bit of Duke Ellington. And so I kind of had it set in my mind. I was like, if I can't play trumpet, I'd rather just not play anything at all. And thankfully, I remember my mom was in the room and, you know, she's a very kind of quiet, polite, reserved person. But I remember she she stood up immediately and she said, no, you know, he has to play the trumpet. You know, thankfully, the band teacher was cool with it. And uh, yeah, haven't really looked back since. And then, of course, a lot of this evolved to the point to where you are today in having produced your debut album. It's called Evergreen, and it's on Origin Records. And that wasn't recorded in Seattle, but you were living in Seattle at the time, and the seed was planted for the album? Yeah, exactly. Right. So the album was recorded down in uh, Glendale, just right outside of Los Angeles. But yeah, exactly. So 
a lot of the um, the music was written during my time in Los Angeles, you know, especially during that that pandemic year of 2020. And so when the time came around where I was ready to, you know, just lock in and actually get the dates in the calendar, you know, the connections that I had, uh, I guess the resources that I had access to were still relatively LA centric. And then, um, you know, not to mention the musicians, uh, Josh Nelson, he's someone who's been kind of a hero and a mentor, you know, throughout the years. And not to mention, I mean, he's just one of my favorite pianists, you know, out there. So yeah, it was a dream to be able to have him on the project. And um, he's also been phenomenal in terms of kind of walking me through, you know, being a, a first time recording artist for my own program or own project. And significantly, he co-produced Evergreen for you as well. Yeah, he was phenomenal in terms of kind of walking me through, all right, these are some things you have to worry about or work on. You know, the studio that we used, um, Josh is well connected with the engineer there. And so, um, yeah, it was just kind of an organic fit, you know, to find the studio in LA, hire primarily Los Angeles-based musicians and, uh, and go from there. Josh Nelson really plays a significant part, not only as a co-producer, but as a collaborator on the music itself. And, and the two of you have beautiful musical conversations in some of the tracks uh, that are rather evident uh, with his presence on them. And speaking of that, you also have another collaboration on the album with a vocalist by the name of Aubrey Johnson. Aubrey and you do such incredible work on this album to where there's a a couple of tunes where she is featured uh, in a Japanese tradition specifically, and she sings in Japanese and does it exquisitely. I, I, I was impressed uh, in listening to her uh, do like Akatombo. Akatombo is a song that we grew up listening to, you know, it's a children's song in Japan um, and a very nostalgic, you know, if you listen to, or, or if you look at the translation of the lyrics, you know, it, it sings about, um, from the vantage point of kind of a, a child being carried by their mother, seeing a red dragonfly in the distance, kind of with the sunset in the background. It's just kind of this very nostalgic, beautiful song. we grew up singing we grew up listening to and so the lyrics were very important to me you know they play a, a pivotal role in the song and so uh yeah that was something i approached her if, if she was comfortable singing and then uh, the other tune uh, shiki no uta with shiki no uta um that is a song that was featured in the anime but uh is is was made popular by uh, the japanese dj nuja bass uh, or sebajun and that also has kind of a uh, an important place in not only Japanese music, but 
um, I think the greater kind of hip hop, you know, neo soul community, you know, him along with artists like Jay Dilla were kind of at the forefront of, you know, using using sampling as almost an instrument and creating this kind of new subgenre. Some people call it uh, like lo-fi hip hop or, or chill hop, but kind of this new genre within hip hop and neo soul that kind of opened up doors to a, a whole lot of different artists. And so I also wanted to highlight that, you know, Nature Bass is one of my favorite artists, one of my favorite kind of DJs. And so similarly, like the lyrics to Shiki no Tara are also very integral to that song. very thankful and, and grateful that you know Avery was open to singing them and that she did it you know so phenomenally at first when she started singing but i put the album on and i started playing it and i didn't look at the uh, liner notes or uh, any of the photographs of the uh, the artists and i'm thinking well who is this japanese vocalist that you've enlisted the help of on the album right <laughs> yeah it's funny you say that on um gary fukushima who He's a phenomenal pianist and educator based out of L.A. He did the liner notes for the album, and he actually mentioned the exact same thing. And we were joking, you know, because uh, he's also Japanese-American, but he was like, yeah, I just, I kind of assumed it was a Japanese vocalist singing when I first heard, you know, before checking the name. But yeah, Aubrey is just, um, you know, she is such a phenomenal vocalist and musician. And then through the rest of the album, she also appears on other tracks to where she's doing some of the vocals without the words, vocalese to, to follow you, and, and she's matching you note for note, and, it, and it's exquisite. Whatever note you played, she sang, and vice versa. Right, yeah, the whole concept uh, for the album, or I guess for a lot of my music on a greater scale, is, uh, yeah, I, I write for vocals as the second horn line pretty frequently. You know, of course, the kind of classic trumpet and tenor or trumpet alto tenor setup you know of course i, I grew up listening to all that uh, all the blakey groups and, and whatnot and so yeah of course i have a love for that texture and that sound but um yeah i think for the sound concept that i have in my head the vocalist as the second horn line has always made sense to me um yeah she pulled it off perfectly i'd love to talk about uh, some of the other tracks on the album before i let you get away but who are the other musicians uh, that are on the album? I think we should give them their due credit. Yeah, so uh, on guitar, we have Masami Kuroki. Masami was also a friend that I made in Los Angeles uh, when I first moved out. Being in the jazz scene in L.A., there was a kind of a natural camaraderie amongst Japanese musicians. And so Masami was one of the first Japanese musicians who were in the jazz scene that I met. And uh, yeah, kind of eventually became... Uh, maybe a little bit of an older brother figure, but ju just a good friend. You know, he's one of my best friends. He was also in a very different way 
from Josh. She was also very kind of instrumental in, in helping me mold my musicality during my time in LA. But yeah, Masami's one of my one of my best friends, one of my favorite guitar players. So uh, he's on the album. On drums is Xavier Lecoutelier. Uh, so Xavier was one of the, uh, I guess, the only musician I brought down from Seattle. And so, um, you know, he was a, a cat that I met, obviously, after I moved up to Seattle during the pandemic. Also one of my best friends, one of my favorite musicians out there. I think the thing I appreciate about him the most is um, he has a very kind of honest approach to the music. You know, never really plays anything too superficial or preconceived. It's always he'll take chances and he'll really kind of put it out there and be honest with the music. And then lastly on bass is Jonathan Richards. He's another just phenomenal professional and also an educator based out of Los Angeles. But he is also just such a, a consummate professional on the instrument, you know, in, in the scene. Um, and he can also play anything. You know, if you're uh, if you're familiar with, with his music, I mean, he plays with uh, everyone from... Joe LaBarbera in LA to, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think he's, he's performed with like Beyonce and other, you know, large pop names out there in LA as well. So he has, you know, a, a wide range in his bag as well. And so, uh, yeah, he was just a solid rock. And solid it is. Uh, and it's uh, resulted in the producing of an album called Evergreen. So why Evergreen? And uh, tell me about the song. Yeah, absolutely. So Evergreen, um, uh, as one might infer, uh, is definitely an ode or not to my time in the Pacific Northwest. While a lot of the tunes on the album were written my, uh, during my time in L.A., Evergreen was one that I wrote up in Seattle. And yeah, there was definitely a lot of, uh, uh, not turbulence, but uh, a, a lot of change, you know, during those few years of moving up to Seattle, uh, transitioning to music full time, you know, kind of getting used to a new city, a new scene, a new culture. But at the same time, you know, there's a certain just kind of serenity or a beauty up in the PNW um, that is, I, I think it's hard to describe unless you've kind of experienced it up there. Yeah, something that I was just really thankful for. Uh, I don't think I would have had that experience or, or would have come to that place, you know, whether it was personally or musically, if I hadn't had the opportunity to spend time up there in Seattle. And so, yeah, I wanted to kind of capture and, and memorialize that moment. And then also, you know, on a, a Kind of a higher level just the concept of evergreen of you know having something that while the world around us is changing or seasons are changing you know we stay true and, and you know uh, true to ourselves and not changing there was something that that was beautiful and, and kind of spoke to me you know from that perspective really just make a mark and make sure that Polaroid that I'm taking reflects the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, my time there, and, and kind of the heavy influence that it had on me. You start the whole album out with a really upbeat, kind of straight-ahead tune, and you pay tribute 
to the one, the only, the delicious gooey butter cake. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that, uh, yeah, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, that's a nod to uh, my hometown, St. Louis. Um, yeah. If you're familiar with gooey butter cake, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's kind of a delicacy a treat, you know, that's, that's famous in St. Louis and it's terrible for you. You know, it's like, it's all butter and sugar and, and <laughs> just everything that's not good for you. But yeah, it's kind of a, I guess to me, it's a nostalgic piece. You know, I have very, very fond memories of St. Louis and I'm, I'm extremely grateful to have grown up there. And some of that might be just a lack of awareness of, of, you know, maybe some of the challenges that my parents might've been going through you know, as Japanese Americans in the Midwest in the 90s. But uh, for me, I, uh, to their credit, I guess, you know, I, I have nothing but fond memories of St. Louis. And yeah, there, it was something where I just wanted to uh, kind of give a nod, an ode to the hometown. Yeah, similar to, I think, you know, not only the actual gooey butter cake dessert, but uh, just the spirit of the city, the spirit of the music that comes from the city. Yeah, a little bit of the, the second line feel, a nod to the tradition. I wanted to make something that was a little bit more maybe rooted in the tradition, but still accessible, you know, and, and true, to, true to what I wanted to do. Well, unlike what happens after you have gooey butter cake, the rest of the album does not uh, descend into a sticky mess. <laughs> but instead, I, I mean, it progresses to where it, it's it's a feast, uh, for lack of better description, while we're making uh, metaphors about food. The, the, there are just some wonderful tunes on here. There are ballads. Uh, there are the traditional Japanese tunes that we touched on or that are uh, Japanese-influenced in many ways. But then you, you have, uh, I, I'm curious as to what, uh, your mindset was or what led you to doing the love theme from Spartacus? Yeah, great question. So that was uh, the last tune. Actually, you know, I ended up going back into the studio to record just that tune with Josh after the uh, the full session dates. But um, yeah, basically it came down to we had nine tracks. We had, you know, room for one more track if we wanted. Um, Josh and I were texting and we both I think we were both kind of thinking, you know, hey, it would be kind of cool to do a duo tune, a duo track, if you're interested. Um, and, you know, we only had one other ballad on the album at the time. So we were kind of spitballing ideas for different tunes, back and forth, back and forth. And then, um, you know, this was very serendipitous, but um, Spartacus happens to be one of our favorite tunes, both of us. And we didn't know it at the time, but I think uh, I think he was the one who wrote back in an email, hey, what do you think about Spartacus, you know, it's kind of a, a deep cut, but if you happen to know it, and I mean, that's one of my favorite, favorite ballads. Um, you know, I think Josh, he, he is very uh, deep in cinematography and kind of the uh, original soundtracks of different movies. And so he, uh, 
obviously knew the the tune from the movie and he actually had a handwritten transcription of the whole chart or the, the whole score as well you know for me my exposure was um very much bill evans his versions of spartacus you know growing up on that music and so yeah it was kind of a, a exciting moment where we were both like hey i love that tune you love that tune uh, let's lock it in Yeah, I'm I'm really happy with it. It's it's a a beautiful tune, and it was also something that was really special for me to be able to record duo with you know one of my heroes uh, that I've been chasing around for so long. There's also a personalization in one of the ballads that you do, and it's called a song for Luke. Tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Luke was a uh, a good friend of mine from college in Cleveland. Um, he was the pianist turned a jazz band, and um, yeah, we were in the same grade. He uh, he also similarly was an engineering major whilst doing music on the side, and so um, yeah, we just from from day one we kind of had this uh, affinity towards each other, and he became one of my good friends, but also was one of the gateways into jazz. You know, for me, I still remember. You know, we would get together on the weekends or maybe on like Friday night. You know, sit in front of the piano with a couple beers and. I still, you know, he was the one who taught me what a what a diminished chord was, and and you know how to read charts out of the real book, and so um, yeah, Luke uh, played a pivotal role, you know, and and was also around during a very pivotal era, you know, for me in terms of my development, and so yeah, after you know after college we had kept up, uh, we chat here and there, but uh, ultimately he was diagnosed with a, a brain tumor. Gosh, what would it be about uh, maybe six years ago or so, six seven years ago or so. And, um, you know, I remember he shared the news and then he was, you know, going through treatment. Um, we would be in touch, you know, he'd send me little voicemails here and there and we'd, we'd message back and forth once in a while. But yeah, I still remember I was actually back in Cleveland, ironically, um, for a wedding. And um, I still remember stepping out to the bathroom. I checked my phone. You know, a, another mutual friend of ours had texted me saying, hey, did you hear about Luke? Um, and then sent me the, the link to the uh, obituary um, that he had passed, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was something where uh, I, I don't want it to be a, uh, I, I wanted the song to be a celebration for him. You know, it's definitely not a song uh, of, of mourning or, or sadness. Um, Luke was just one of the brightest, you know, lights of a human being that you can meet. You know, just so kind to everybody, always smiling. And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to do something to celebrate him. Thank you. 
guess my way of saying thank you to him of you know thank you for yeah not only introducing me to the music but just also being such a phenomenal person in my life you know one thing i always share with friends is that i i am trying to be better about telling my friends that i love them because you know i, I never got to tell luke that and so yeah the song was kind of a way for me to um uh, hopefully you know he's hearing it somewhere and and receiving that message that you know uh hey i love you and and thank you um yeah, that's that's time for Luke. Well, I would say that uh, you succeeded uh, in a beautiful, loving way. So, and there are other things on this album of uh, things that meant something to you as well. And one of them deals with the subject of racial injustice and some concern that uh, we are all living these days. And you did a, a song called "My Anguish and Solidarity." Yeah, so that song was a. Uh... That was probably the song that took me the longest to write, or it was kind of a culmination of different parts, you know, that I had written throughout the years. But as Americans living in this country, racial injustice, prejudice, discrimination, and specifically, you know, uh, against Black Americans and people of color is not anything that's new. You know, it's not anything that's new in my lifetime. It's not anything that's new in this country's lifetime. But, you know, I I think in uh, there was a specific window uh, mid 2010s through the pandemic, right, where I think rightfully so a lot of these travesties were getting, you know, uh, coverage into the mainstream and it felt like there was a collective kind of cry for a a need for change, but also this knowledge that, you know, there isn't a lot that we can do on an individual level to contribute, you know, to changing some of these these systemic issues. And so that's something I I think about a lot, you know, I, I always have, you know, we were deeply involved in, in, uh, you know, civic engagement and, and racial injustice during college as well. I was in a few organizations, you know, that, that, that dealt with that. And so it's something that's always been at the forefront of my mind. And, um, you know, particularly during that specific window of turbulence, but also just kind of, you know, there was a period where it felt like it was almost every month, you know, you'd hear about a black American being shot, you know, black American being uh, murdered on the streets. And so, you know, I thought about what can I do in addition to contributing in other areas? You know, what can I do from an artistic standpoint? And so, um, yeah, that song is kind of a culmination of all those primarily anxiety, anguish, you know, as the title implies. You know, I think the beginning of the tune, you can kind of feel that a a lot of chaotic energy, a lot of turbulence, Mm -hmm. you know, after the bass solo in the latter half of the tune. I wanted that to be a little bit more of a, you know, once kind of the chaos and the smoke subsides, a little bit of a beacon of light of hope. That's where the uh, the vocal line, you know, to me that was kind of the, um, there is a light and hope at the end of the tunnel, you know, through all this chaos. feel like we want to give up you know it might feel like there's no hope and that there's so much weight but we have to keep fighting and we have to keep pushing towards that light Um, that was the thought process behind writing it 
Thank you for sharing the meaning uh, about that with us. Lastly, June, what I'd like to ask you about, and I don't know if it's by intention, but the last tune on the album is called Holding On to Autumn. Was there an intent to put that in the last position, or, or was there some metaphorical or hidden meaning to what that is? Ah, yeah. Uh, so I didn't... Uh, originally, I didn't necessarily have that slotted as the last tune, um, but uh, yeah, a, a little more on that in a in a second. But yeah, the you know the meaning behind the tune. I think that's probably the last tune I wrote on the album. I, I think I wrote it a couple of weeks before the recording date. But um, yeah, that one's a little bit more of a melancholy concept of um, you know a lot of times in life you know we want something, we want um, an action or a milestone or whatever it might be. You know, in this metaphoric context it's kind of the peak of autumn you know the foliage season right mm -hmm. and um everyone is always can't wait till the first you know october weekend right that you can drive up to vermont and see the beautiful foliage um and you're waiting and waiting and you know looking at your calendar and you're missing you know all of that window leading up to kind of this milestone that you're trying to get to only to find out you know once that time comes there's really nothing beyond that you know you see the foliage weekend and then now it's kind of next thing coming up is winter you know so uh, it was written about kind of the concept of sometimes we're so blind uh chasing after kind of this thing that we have in our forefront that we ignore the path that we're taking we ignore the the journey along the way and then once we reach that thing you know we've it's kind of like holding a flower petal you know in your hands and you're you're so uh, desperate to keep it that you end up crushing it in your hands and, and it's gone. A little bit of a melancholy message, I guess. But uh, so in terms of where it is on the album, that's something, again, credit to um, Josh and his artistry. The very ending of the tune, the coda, it, it's, it's an alternate chords that he plays for the very, very last you know few bars of the tune. And that's something that he actually kind of threw out as an idea during the recording session to say, hey, I think this would give it a little bit more of a definitive kind of send-off. Yeah, it was a hundred percent the right move. You know, I think the tune has a certain kind of period or closure that it comes to at the very, very end. And um, yeah, ended up making a, a perfect tune as a closer for the album too. It brings it to a, a wonderful close, and and I think it's uh, only appropriate that it starts out on uh, the the note of the sweet butter cake, uh, but then you end it uh, on the the proper note to bring it all. Uh, full circle and to the close, and I, I think that's good. But mm -hmm. at, at this point, June, I would say this is hardly the end of 
the musical uh, journey that you're on. Uh, you now are living in New York. And so in in closing today, where does this uh, landing in New York uh, lead you? Or what do you think is ahead before maybe the next peripatetic move? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, hopefully I'll, I'll be in New York for some amount of time. You know, the move here for me was purely based out of a desire to be playing with the best, particularly for this music that we play. I mean, you know, New York is kind of the uh, the mecca of this music. And um, it's a place where I can come and know that there are tens of thousands of musicians who are better than I am here. And so, uh, yeah, I, I want to keep pushing myself. You know, I want to be on that that platform with those other musicians that I respect and admire. And then, um, yeah, I think the next uh, the next project is already kind of in, in the works, you know, using this evergreen as a jumping board, just keeping kind of the creative juices flowing, um, thinking about the next project right now. So, yeah, I'm just diving in. You know, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to um, continue improving, you know, as a player, as a composer, as an artist, and just get deeper in the music. Can you give us a hint as to what's coming next? <laughs> uh, well, uh, more more immediately, you know, we'll be touring Evergreen on the uh, West Coast. You know, we have some uh, some vinyl that's coming out for Evergreen, and then, uh, yeah, I, I have uh, probably about an album's worth of new music that I have written or I'm, I'm finishing off. So, hoping to be in the studio again um, before the end of the year this year. How could our listeners learn more about you? and the music that you compose, produce, and perform. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, folks can find my information on my website, uh, junedamusic.com. They can buy the CDs and then uh, very shortly hear vinyls as well off of my band camp. And then, uh, yeah, all social media, streaming platforms, uh, the music's available there as well. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I can't uh, tell you enough, June, this has been uh, a wonderful conversation uh, that I've had the good fortune of having with you and learning more about this new release and excited to hear more in the future for you. And thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Yeah, thanks so much, Alan. It was, it was a pleasure and an honor being here speaking with you. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with trumpeter and composer June Ida. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.